It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Let's start off with some Taylor Swift news, shall we? Uh, she is now, I guess, the most popular person in the country. An NBC poll actually included Taylor Swift. She's a 40% favorability rating, beating out Beyonce at 33%, but also beating out Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, higher than all of them. However, Republicans, not so much. They may like her music or not, but because she's an advocate for the Democrats, 28% of Republicans view Taylor Swift negatively, 26% viewed her positively. And the others, I don't know. Uh, On MSNBC, host Mehdi Hassan was talking about a guy named Mike Davis. Now, Mike Davis is being really uh, heavily promoted Uh, by Donald Trump Jr. and Steve Bannon and others to be the next attorney general if, in fact, Donald Trump wins the presidency. And so Hassan went into uh, the record of Mike Davis, say uh, he has uh, urged his followers to arm up against the violent black underclass, among other things. And then Davis hit back at him, pledging to indict me when he's AG. For what? I'm not sure. Okay, so here's what Davis actually said. As far as Mehdi Hassan, he wants to indict, detain, denaturalize, and deport. I have already picked his spot out in the D.C. gulag, but I'll put him in the women's cell block so these whiny leftists don't get beat up as often. Well, that's a pretty provocative statement to make, and I guess he's assuming he will be attorney general. Uh, Needless to say, this is sort of troubling language from a potential attorney general in the uh, Trump administration. Okay, According to the UK Press Gazette, an investment firm backed by Abu Dhabi is about to take control of two British publications, The Spectator, which also plays to the American market. My friend Ben Dominic works there. And The Telegraph, you know, one of London's major newspapers, agreeing to repay debts run up by the previous owners that would be, it's called Redbird, the uh, fund is, and that would be 600 million pounds. That is a lot of money, uh, even for a major newspaper and a significant magazine. Now, it so happens that Redbird is led by Jeff Zucker, the former CNN president who was ousted, and he's been looking for things to acquire. Uh, statement, Redbird uh, is entirely committed to maintaining the existing editorial team of Telegraph and Spectator publications, believe the editorial independence for these titles is essential 
to protecting their reputation and credibility. Well, we'll see how they're run. Um, and look, I mean, Zucker knows something about the American market, so that might be good news for the Telegraph. But, you know, getting a new owner and as prominent an owner as Zucker, who once ran NBC, uh, is kind of a shakeup for those publications. All right. Elon Musk, the continuing drama of Elon Musk, filed a lawsuit yesterday, as he had promised, against Media Matters, the left-wing advocacy group dedicated to going after conservative media, over what uh, he says is an intentionally deceptive report about anti-Semitism. You'll recall that. Musk is in a whole bunch of trouble, or and and X is, because uh, of of Elon endorsing an obscure person's tweet, who claimed that Jewish communities hate whites. Walked it back a bit, but not entirely. So, oh, this is an interesting twist. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, also yesterday, sure, it's just coincidence, opened an investigation into media matters, an investigation into potential fraudulent activity. Paxton said, his office said in a statement, that uh, he was investigating to ensure that the public has not been deceived by the schemes of radical left-wing organizations who would like nothing more than to limit freedom by reducing participation in the public square. So, Media Matters uh, late last week had released a report including screenshots of mainstream advertisers appearing beside pro-Nazi content on Twitter. And it was after that that the Comcast, Apple, Disney and others suspended their advertising. So Musk claims in the lawsuit interference with contract business disparagement and interference with prospective economic advantage. You know the way lawyers talk. The lawsuit said that Media Matters manipulated the X algorithm by following 30 accounts made up only of controversial users and large companies and then undertaking excessive scrolling and refreshing to create the false misleading perception that these types of pairings were common, widespread, and alarming. All right, uh, interesting yesterday, Fox News correspondent Benjamin Hall, who was badly injured while covering the war in Ukraine in an attack that took the lives of uh, two of his Fox colleagues, uh, was in Kiev yesterday to actually meet Vladimir Zelensky. And he was accompanied by the CEO of Fox News Media, Lachlan Murdoch. And so... Ben Hall, who I admire greatly, and who was almost killed, got to interview Zelensky. And meanwhile, President Zelensky awarded Ben Hall with the Order of Merit 
for his outstanding personal contribution to strengthening interstate cooperation, support for Ukraine's independence, and territorial integrity. As long as I'm on this related subject. A Palestinian freelancer working for NBC News was arrested in Israel, in Israel, on suspicion of inciting terror and identifying with a terrorist organization. This according to the New York Post, Mirvat al-Azeh was jailed a few days ago after sharing four recent Facebook posts regarding Hamas's sneak attack on Israel. doesn't say exactly what the post said, but it says that this was inciting and glorying, I assume that means glorifying, the horrible acts committed against civilians. NBC says yesterday it has cut ties with this journalist. Before we recently retained her services, we were not aware of her personal social media activity that provided the basis for the Israeli investigation, says NBC. You know, this is what happened with CNN as well. That was a case of a picture surfacing of Hamas kissing CNN's freelancer, and they, uh, the network cut ties almost immediately. But I, does it make sense for Israel's image to jail the guy? I mean, they could deport him. I don't know. What's, what's worse? Okay, story number one. Joe Biden turned 81 yesterday. I have a column on this today on Fox. Uh, No big celebration for reasons you might expect. He spent part of his day pardoning a couple of turkeys. A uh, presidential tradition that seems never to go away. Um, Well, what happened is, um, naturally... Biden's birthday. It's a news peg for all these outlets to to revisit the question of, is Joe Biden too old to serve a second term? And NBC didn't exactly give him a birthday present. Its poll found Biden at his lowest approval rating, 40% in that particular survey. In any NBC survey is what I mean. Um, So Politico has a piece about Democratic donors asking how to deal with the age issue. And Biden's deputy campaign manager said to focus on Biden's historic accomplishments. I don't think that's going to do it. Uh, This was described in this meeting as well-received by those who see his age as a mark of his deep experience and met with disagreement by others who fear not enough is being done to remind voters that Donald Trump is just three and a half years younger. Yes, but polls show that voters are much more concerned about Biden's age than Trump's, just because Trump appears to be a more vigorous character, although there has been an effort lately to point out when he makes a flub, um, makes a statement that's not factual, and this is now being attributed to his age by political opponents. Some Democrats want more joking about Grandpa Joe, Biden did joke yesterday with the turkeys that it's difficult turning 60. Uh-huh. 
Ron Klain, former chief of staff, quoted this piece. I, kn- I think everyone knows it's an issue, and we have to address it. The White House should emphasize, says Klain, it gives him more wisdom and experience how he's navigated this difficult problem in Ukraine. Now, part of the reason I learned from this poll, and it's also kind of intuitive, that Biden's numbers continue to either be, you know, this is abysmally low for an incumbent president, is that 70% of Democrats in this same poll disapprove of Biden's handling of Israel's war with Hamas. Especially younger voters, who particularly are opposed to this war, not understanding, in my view, that Israel is our longtime ally, friend, and the only true democracy in the Middle East. And that Israel was attacked in the most brutal, awful fashion in which children, babies, grandmothers were killed. And that Israel pulled out of Gaza in 2005. But, so in this poll, in that age group, 18 to 34, Joe Biden's approval rating, 31%. Democratic voters overall, 51% say Israel's gone too far. 27% say Israel's military actions are justified. That is just a sea change among Democratic voters who used to be among the most loyal supporters of Israel. I mean, that is just remarkable, and it tells you, at least among certain demographic groups, and Democrats overall, that Israel, and by extension, President Biden, are losing support among these younger voters. But, you know, if you view Israel as a terrorist oppressor, then your view of the president's role, obviously, is going to be negative as well. And also in this poll, Trump edges Biden by two points a year out, and it's only two points, but still. Then there's another political piece on how Democrats are coping with all this bad news, such as rationalizing that he was underestimated in 2020. Now, Washington Post. Just look at the, you know, okay, so they gave Biden a hard time. Poll numbers are lousy, and he's 81, and he can't change that. And next year, he'll be 82. But look of the coverage of Trump. Washington Post. No president has ever attached more public detractors, ever attracted more public detractors, who were formerly in his inner circle. They are closely watching his rise. Uh, With alarm, among them, his former vice president, top military advisors, lawyers, some members of his cabinet, economic advisors, press officials, and campaign aides. So, this is not new. Every single case, except for a few blind quotes here, has been reported on in the past. What is this tying it together, including Jenna Ellis and Sidney Powell, Trump's former campaign lawyers, who have pleaded guilty in the Georgia election case, and and they did so by getting plea bargains, to spare them any jail, jail time in exchange for uh, damaging testimony uh, when this goes to trial about Donald Trump. 
So the most interesting thing in this story is Trump's second chief of staff, retired General John Kelly, saying, I came out and told people the awful things he said about wounded soldiers, and it didn't have a half day's bounce. You had his attorney general, Bill Barr, come out, and not a half day's bounce. If anything, his numbers go up. It might even move the needle in the wrong direction. I think we're in a dangerous zone in our country. And then it quotes a bunch of other things, a bunch of other people. Oh, including Ruth Ben-Jiat, an NYU professor. There are echoes of fascist rhetoric, and they're very precise. The overall strategy is an obvious one. Dehumanizing people so that the public will not have as much of an outcry at the things you want to do. That, I believe, uh, was from the New York Times. And the New York Times has another piece warning about the dangers. The dangers of Donald Trump. Oh, the Times piece says scholars, Democrats, and anti-Trump Republicans are asking how much Trump resembles current strongmen abroad and how he compares to authoritarian leaders of the past and whether his rhetorical turn into more fascist-sounding territory is just his latest public provocation of the left or an evolution in his beliefs or the dropping of a veil. So again, in the time story, other than calling up people to comment, most of the facts here have been known as well because the quotes about vermin and so forth, which I talked about yesterday, which I don't approve of, but immediately the media went to Hitler analogies. As did Biden, by the way. Um, it just... I was in the newspaper business for more than 30 years. I know how this works. When you have a hot story, you want to keep writing it. Particularly if you don't particularly like the target of the story. I don't think there's any dispute that most national journalists uh, are against Trump, are passionately against Trump. In fact, see it as their mission to stop Trump. And I'm not against reporting all these different facts. He says things like vermin, it's a story. Many people have turned against him from his inner circle, it's a story. But these same set of facts keep getting massaged into news stories, and that's how you do it. You try to find a, a supposedly new angle and you call up a couple of NYU professors, and you write it as if it's a new story. It's all the same story, rehashed. You know, it becomes a new story when Trump posts something new on True Social or something like that. That's fine. He's saying these things publicly. But basically, these are pieces that recycle and rehash what we already know about Donald Trump in an effort to keep pounding the drums. That's just pretty evident to me. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. All right, number two. This open AI story is just flipping unbelievable. 
to recap, Sam Altman, co-founder of the company, brilliant guy, guy who essentially invented chatbot GPT, fired by the board, without giving a specific reason. You can just can't do that. This has been the lead story in the top papers. You know, you may not have heard of Sam Altman, but he is the man when it comes to this stuff. Oh, he didn't communicate well. Uh, oh, he wasn't candid. Not one example. Just co- a complete violation of, you know, corporate public relations 101. Okay, so they kick him out. Then they say, gee, maybe we should try to get him back. And they try to get him back and it doesn't work. This all is a, just a personality clash in my view. So yesterday he jumped to Microsoft where he's going to be in charge of his own unit, his own lab. Now, at OpenAI, more than 700 of the company's uh, roughly 770 employees have signed a letter threatening to quit unless the current board resigns and reappoints Altman as CEO. This is in the Washington Post, quoting the source. And one of the signers, who is on the four-person board, Ilya Sutskever, he had led the drive, but now he's flipped. He wants Altman back. Oh, such a mistake. Oh, how could we have done this? Your actions have made it obvious that you were incapable of overseeing OpenAI, the employee said. This is not a few rogue employees. This is virtually everybody who works at the company. The potential mass exodus at OpenAI AI, puts the future of the lab in doubt. A drastic change of fate, this piece says, for a company that until just days ago was considered one of the most promising startups in Silicon Valley with a valuation of close to $90 billion. It could well go out of business. You know, the people, the scientists, the experts on AI who make up this company, if even half of them leave, Maybe they'll all go to Microsoft. I don't know. Um, it lists, uh, the story lists some other top officials in the company. It's not just the lower-level scientists who signed this letter. Some of them can command salaries in the tens of millions of dollars. You know, they can go to Google, they can go to Facebook, whatever. The whole thing just was so badly botched. And here's the the board member who led the charge, Satskiver, saying on X, I love everything we've built together and I will do everything I can to reunite the company after I did everything I could to blow up the company, I guess he didn't mention. Unreal. All right, let's move to number three. Federal Appeals Court here in Washington. Yesterday appeared to signal, and we were able to hear the audio of this. So you don't have to take my word for it. You can listen to how the arguments went. Appeared to signal yesterday that at least some part of the gag order placed on former President Trump in the D.C. case, the federal case that will probably be heard in next March. Three-judge panel uh, opened the possibility of adjusting the terms of the order, 
or even narrowing the scope of the people covered by the order, including potentially freeing Trump to attack Jack Smith, the special counsel. And so, in her order, Judge Tanya Chutkin allowed Trump to criticize the Justice Department, President Biden, and herself. She also allowed him to maintain that the prosecution itself was a partisan retaliation against him. Uh, Trump filed this appeal. His lawyers argued that this was the essence of censorship, infringed on his First Amendment rights. So here's the thing. I mean, he can take the most expansive view and says, I have to be able to campaign. I'm a candidate for president. I'm the leading candidate for president, by far, on the Republican side. And my freedom of speech is being uh, restricted here. So I think, based on the questioning, we're going to end up with a much narrower gag order. His lawyers said that he should enjoy absolute protection under the First Amendment as an example of core political speech. And so, here's the judge hearing uh, the judge who is hearing this appeal. One of the three, I should say. Well, uh, as this trial approaches, the atmosphere is going to be incredibly tense. Why does the district court have to wait and see and wait for the threats to come rather than taking a reasonable action in advance? All three of these judges were appointed by Democratic presidents. So that may well be a factor in how the ruling comes down. This could well end up in the Supreme Court. Uh, Prosecutors cited uh, Trump's near-daily attacks against Jack Smith, Judge Chutkin, and other potential and potential witnesses, including Mike Pence, Bill Barr, General Mark Milley, former chief chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. All right, let's turn to the war number four. This is just sickening. The Michigan home of Rahm Emanuel, former Chicago mayor, former top White House official, current U.S. ambassador to Japan, was defaced with the word Nazis spray-painted on the fence. Chicago Sun-Times reporting that Emanuel wasn't there when this happened. He told the Sun-Times, our family is very proud of how our friends, neighbors, and the community have rallied to our support and in a singular voice in condemning hatred and bigotry. You know, it's not that Nazis being spray-painted on a synagogue or on people that we never heard of isn't as bad. But obviously, if you want to get attention for your cause, Rahm Emanuel is Jewish. And I remember talking to Rahm in a green room some years ago before he ran for mayor about how he wanted to send his kids to a Jewish school and he was weighing how that would work. This is just disgusting and despicable. Okay, Israel releasing a video of what it said was a 55-meter section of a fortified tunnel running 10 meters beneath the Al-Shifa hospital complex. And saying you can see that there are utility cables 
along one wall that leads to a, a door that the Israelis say is a blast-proof door with a firing hole in it. In other words, anybody behind that door can stick a rifle through that hole and fire away at the attackers. I just think the strongest evidence so far, while Israel contemplates how to excavate into that tunnel without danger, is the October 7th tapes, security tapes, of two hostages being taken inside the hospital. So think about this. Hamas says, no, of course, this is just a hospital to help uh, sick patients. Nothing to do with anything else. Hamas is not even there. And yet Hamas was there because Hamas was seen rushing those two hostages into the hospital. And this is what they do. They embed with civilian institutions, hospitals, children's schools. And then... If there are any casualties, they say, oh, Israelis, what terrible, evil people. When they are the ones putting their own Palestinian people in danger. But looking not so good for Israel is a strike on an Indonesian hospital in Gaza, killing at least 12 people, wounding dozens. Indonesia's foreign minister calling this a violation of international humanitarian law. And Israel has confirmed this, but I don't know what the justification is. Uh, Also, a New Yorker magazine writer, a Palestinian poet, whose name is Mosab Abu Toha, um, has reportedly gone missing after he was detained by Israeli forces. The New Yorker says, over the weekend, Israeli forces reportedly detained Abu Toha in central Gaza. His whereabouts are now unknown. Uh, The New Yorker joins other organizations calling for his safe return. According to the Washington Post, which talked to the man's wife, he was attempting to evacuate to southern Gaza with his family, which is what Israelis had asked the Palestinians to do, the Gaza residents, when he was arrested by the Israeli military at checkpoints. But uh, his friends and colleagues are saying he was kidnapped by Israeli forces. So I don't know what he did to deserve this. I think it's not wise at all. And we'll see what Israel has to say about that. I don't think Israelis have made any comment. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Number five. I spent some time yesterday talking about Rosalind Carter and what I remembered from the Carter administration and how there were things that I just didn't even remember that she'd sat in on cabinet meetings. Now, she was just a lifelong partner to President Carter. Uh, She was 96. He is 99. He is also in hospice care, but has managed to hang on. I'm happy about that. But the the loss of his wife uh, after, you know, 77 years must just be devastating. So Jonathan Alter... uh, one-time colleague of mine who has written a book on Jimmy Carter and therefore knows a lot about Mrs. Carter, talked about a major investment in 1980, the last year of Jimmy's presidency, the Mental Health Systems Act of 1980 that Rosalind Carter helped pass. Okay, sitting in her office at the Carter Center 
which she and Jimmy co-founded after his presidency, and which has done so much good work around the world. She was upset talking about her husband's successor, Ronald Reagan, how he had defunded this ambitious program, leaving tens of thousands of people untreated. It took 30 years until Obamacare before federal funding for community mental health treatment centers was fully resurrected with her help. Perhaps, uh, Jonathan writes, uh, she'll finally be appreciated for her role as this country's premier champion of mental health. Jimmy Carter has said he would not have won his totally long-shot 1976 campaign for the presidency without her charm, hard work, and smart advice. She spent 75 days campaigning in Florida, and that was one of the turning points of the campaign. She was the first first lady to have her own East Wing office and professional staff. She confronted, as an envoy from her husband, authoritarian heads of state in Latin America on their human rights abuses. I didn't know that. She also worked for to, uh, actions to counter age discrimination. And she was so touched by the plight of the Vietnamese boat, boat people who were fleeing uh, that country after the South lost the war, she helped persuade her husband to more than double the number of refugees admitted from Southeast Asia. She pushed her husband to appoint more women to important positions, positions as he did, naming five times as many women to the federal bench as all of his predecessors combined. You know, we take it for granted now there are a lot of female judges and justices, but wow. Those must have been some interesting conversations. Her nickname was Steel Magnolia, which she liked. And while most presidential aides view first ladies warily, the senior staff in the Carter White House often wish the stubborn president listened even more to his impressive wife, especially on politics. Whereas Jimmy Carter acknowledged her instincts were better than his. Uh, when he lost the presidency, Rosalind grew depressed. She wanted him to run again against Reagan in, in, in 84. Jimmy Carter said, no way. And then they established the Carter Center, and that included fellowships for journalists covering mental health issues. And I can't get over the story of how Rosalind Carter was delivered by Jimmy's mother, who was a nurse, and a couple days later, Jimmy Carter met the baby, who would later become his fiancée, his wife, and clearly a political partner who just shattered a lot of barriers, a lot of so-called glass ceilings during and after her husband's presidency. That about wraps it up for us. I just think because Rosalind Carter has kind of been given short shrift by history because, you know, her husband was seen as a failed one-term president, though he had his accomplishments, that it was worth revisiting today, along with all these other crazy stories, Sam Altman, OpenAI, Elon Musk suing Media Matters, 
etc., etc. Thanks for staying with me. We'll be back tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.